Hey, Nora. Hi, Sandy. So, it's been a good month for us, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, March was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all of you out there listening to us and supporting us. It's like, uh, been we weren't expecting this kind of support, so... I feel really good about it. So thank you. Um, We are now uh, number two on iTunes in our podcasting category, which is like amazing. (laughs) It is is amazing. It might not be the right category for us, but (laughs) (laughs) it may not. We're going to figure out how to correct that. But I am glad that you find all of our political rants interesting. Never would have guessed that people would have found that interesting, but it's great. When we first started doing this and started to talk about this, it was like, are people going to find us interesting? Are people going to find this necessary? And there's been a lot of great feedback. We hit uh, 4,000 downloads last month, which is really cool. And we are going to try and keep putting the shows out as often as we can, uh, aiming for once a week and and maybe even more than that if there's an issue that uh, that we really need to cover. And we have a Patreon Yes, we have a Patreon. It's been going really well. So thank you to all of you who've become patrons because patrons, patrons, <laughs> become <laughs> patrons because we have been able to uh, cover our hosting costs, which is really great. And so now we have a, a whole slew of, um, of goals that we want to meet. The first one being to make the podcast accessible by transcribing it and of course being the people we are we would like to use a unionized transcriber and we've put up on the patreon what that will cost us uh, per month and hopefully you will support that and we'll update the patreon this week with a whole bunch of other goals like making it bilingual so we'll get the transcripts translated and so on there's going to be a bunch of stuff so um thank you for supporting us and please continue to and share this podcast around we like making it yeah (laughs) Yeah, rate us, rate us on iTunes. Share it through iTunes if you want us to hit these uh, amazing benchmarks like number two. And get a friend to listen because that, I think, is the best way to get people into podcasts. That and to get people to think better about things, <laughs> which is the goal. Yeah. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. what are we going to talk about this week? We are going to talk about... That was a drum roll. Gentrification. Gentrification. Shoutouts to Soran Gebrasalasi for um, one of our listeners for encouraging us to talk about gentrification and some of the stuff that's happening actually really around the country. But, uh, you know, we're I'm based in Toronto um, and Soran is, uh, um, you know, has a business uh, on Weston Road in Toronto and they recently received a slew like the businesses in the area have received a slew of eviction notices, 60-day eviction notices, to vacate, to make way for condos. Oh, of course. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that's why she's requesting us to talk about this because, uh, and I think it's a good idea because I don't think that we have enough conversation about gentrification in the public sphere in a way that really makes sense. I don't think that the media really focuses on it that much. I think Richard Florida has now disavowed gentrification and he's the guy who was like all behind it. So I mean, it's like now, <laughs> you know, it's a really important thing to, to talk about because it changes a lot of lives negatively. And as you can probably guess, the people that it affects negatively are people who tend to be poor, who tend to be black, who tend to be racialized, 
um, and so on. Yeah, gentrification is not not just a Toronto problem, of course. Uh, it made the news uh, a couple of weeks ago because of uh, some events that happened in Hamilton. Hamilton is rapidly gentrifying as Toronto gets even more pricey and a lot of people look for other places to live in the in the GTA. Of course, gentrification in Vancouver are something, two things that I think often about. <laughs> oh, geez, Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, Va- Vancouver is one of these places where you're like, wow, I would like an $80 a plate dinner and oh my God, there's actually a camp of people living right beside this restaurant. Like it is it is the, the most extreme rich and poor visibility that I've seen, that I've experienced in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't really understand Vancouver like as a concept. Like, <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. get that place. <laughs> But the but the rapid um, housing price increase that is that has plagued Vancouver for many years and various social policies, uh, you know, not the least, of course, was the Olympics kind of made that place ground zero for 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 how how fast gentrification can happen. And of course, now we're seeing pricing um, housing prices in Toronto actually higher uh, than uh, than Vancouver. But this happens everywhere. You know, Quebec City, there's uh, a neighborhood called Limoilou that has uh, in the last, just since I've moved here in five years, that has gone from a pretty working class, nice neighborhood with things like laundromats and cheap places to eat or convenience stores have now rapidly changed to be a place where you can go and get artisan bacon. Um, <laughs> Sorry, and, what? did um, you just say artisan bacon? <laughs> no. Is that a real thing? Yeah, there's a shop that's dedicated only to different kinds of bacon. And it's like, like, what the hell is that even? Like, okay, that's like artisan pork rind or something. Like, what the hell? We're all doomed, everyone. We are all doomed. This world is <laughs> rapidly just falling apart. Dooming itself. And <laughs> <laughs> my old neighborhood, like, Sarone lives and works uh, in, in the Western area, that not too far from where I used to live, um, which is uh, which was which was Rogers Road in, Oak, in Oakwood. And I remember seeing someone talking about a new espresso joint uh, in my old neighborhood, and it was like, that was a place where there was, like, five weird churches and, like, five convenience stores and the best Portuguese barbecue in Toronto and like three driving schools that was literally my my neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) and I guess now you can get really nice espresso although they had a Portuguese bakery that had nice espresso too so whenever I hear gentrification I think actually back to something that that you would talk about many years ago when this was first put on a lot of people's radars about how this isn't necessarily about giving um, uh, poor people access to like a, a kind of a nice thing like maybe a nice coffee shop is not the worst thing in the world but it often becomes the symbol for what is happening and Mm -hmm. I think we get caught up in the symbols and we don't talk about who is to blame and and how do we resist these waves of gentrification Um, especially when the language used to quote-unquote clean up a neighborhood let's say usually sounds kind of reasonable and kind of nice. Yeah that was something that would often frustrate me actually it, it continues to frustrate me to this day I remember having a conversation with uh, Patrice Cullors, who is the founder of Black Lives Matter, about it just a few months ago, actually, because we were talking about gentrification in the context of Los Angeles and uh, what was happening in Inglewood. And we were both talking about how frustrated we get when people tend to just focus on the fact that, you know, like nice things are coming and that's terrible. The, the terrible part isn't that, you know, there's there's nice things that are coming. <laughs> <laughs> like poor, poor folks deserve to be thought of in a city planning context when you're thinking about parks, when you're thinking about public space, when you're thinking about services that people need access to. And some of these poorer areas become 
dangerous in the ways that they become dangerous because of a lack of planning around these nice things that poor folks should have, that we should have. Like everybody should have these things. The problem and and the reason why these things become symbols is because when a nice, I don't know, fucking artisan bacon, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, nice things, by the way, I am not talking about artisan bacon. But, you know, when a when a, a coffee shop moves in that has, I don't know, in some sort of, uh, you know, fancy espresso or whatever it is, and then rents start to increase, that's when the problem comes in. But the process by which that happens is actually, it's quite targeted. It's a planned thing. And it's not just as haphazard as I think that some people tend to talk about it. There has been a big gentrification project happening in Regent Park. And Regent Park is a low-income area or I guess used to be, like, I don't even know if we could call it that anymore. Like, it's really really confusing to me. Yeah, like, so what's happened in Regent Park is that they've decided, they had decided, the city decided that they were going to do a new type of gentrified development where um, they, you know, for for folks who were living in low-income housing, they, they literally moved them, some of them for a period of time so they could come back and move back. Uh, But, uh, they literally moved people, like disrupted their their living, moved them to other parts of the city and started these massive condo projects and development projects built primarily by the Daniels Corporation. When they built those condos, what they would do for some of them is to have like a mixed situation where like half the condo or like one third of the condo or some portion of the condo, I don't know accurately what it would be, would be for community housing. So some people could come back, but a whole bunch of that condo would still be for purchase, like a regular condo. And so that's what has happened in Regent Park. So some people who have been pushed out of the area and literally forced to move could not come back for various reasons, whether there was not enough space or uh, if you know you could can't afford to move because moving does cost money, whatever it may be. And that has significantly changed the landscape of the area. I was recently reading an article where an organization called COBA, which is the Collective of Black Artists, which is located in Regent Park, describes how the change of like how all these condominiums going up has changed um, their viability in the space because Mm. people used to just come by the the collective of black artists uh, to see what was going on and that's how they would get people to to join in the into their programming well now the demographics of the space have changed so much that what we're seeing popping up is you know these you know, these nice coffee shops and these like really specialty grocery stores and people aren't walking into Koba anymore mm. and so unfortunately they are i think leasing their space as a result of of what's going on and they're they're going to need to reevaluate whether or not they can stay in that location. That uh, des- description makes me think of all of the different moving parts that makes a project like that happen. So I lived in Toronto when Regent Park was Regent Park and um and to maybe just to describe it it's it was kind of like section between several blocks and there were apartment blocks that were not very high so 
I think like five stories or six stories, maybe at the max, like eight stories. And the mm-hmm. community, it was like quite like inward facing in terms of like the, the, the apartment blocks all faced in towards the community. And I, you know, the, I guess the idea is that you create community spaces that way there's kids can kind of play in the, in the areas uh, that the that the apartment blocks kind of surround. There wasn't much around like the closest grocery store would have been like maybe the no frills at Sherbourne and Wellesley. Yeah, about Mm -hmm. probably. And then there would be like, you know, some corner stores and and that's kind of it service centers or artistic spaces like this. And and so it's like in in a matter of not very long because the Regent Park project, like the development project only started when I left Toronto. So five and a half years ago. And for between now or then and now, they've like jumped the the basic like, here's a cheap coffee shop or here's a cheap restaurant or here's grocery store that isn't a specialty grocery store. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's it's just it's like an, an overdrive. And, and the years of planning that it took to decide that they were going to demo the old blocks and then replace them with condos. That's kind of where the problem, where that, that problem is in motion. And unfortunately for a lot of people who are not necessarily plugged into movements, like certainly there were movements that were sounding the alarm bell at every zoning meeting. Absolutely. And continue to, to be quite frank. Like I think yeah. actually the, the resistance uh, in Regent Park is one of the stronger ones that we've seen in the city. But um, yeah, sorry, continue. I just wanted to make sure that that was uh, in here. Yeah, well, for average people who might not be plugged in, what they don't see the zoning meetings, they don't see the the the, the town halls necessarily that sometimes get called by city hall, or the sometimes mm-hmm. you don't see the activism that a lot of activists are doing for whatever reason, and so it's like by the time you realize that people have been pushed out, people have been promised that they can return, and then all of a sudden you realize that they can't return, then you kind of jump to this shorthand of well, gentrification is these is these coffee spot, coffee shops, these art art galleries, these these uh, organic um, grocery stores or whatever. And in this episode, what I'd love for us to do is to untangle some of the popular understandings of gentrification from the actual processes that are happening, right? Like rents going up is not a fatality. It doesn't, you actually don't necessarily have to live in a city where rents keep going up. So what is happening when rents go up? Or what's happening when city taxes start going up and start pricing people out because all of a sudden the values of their properties are rising. So if you're paying $100 on a on a building that's on a piece of property that's priced at X and then all of a sudden that starts to rise and your $100 turns into $1,000 but your usage hasn't changed, of course you're priced out of that place and of course you're forced to move somewhere else. But those, are, those aren't necessarily forces that I think a lot of people see. Mm-hmm. And so... Then it becomes, well, like in this in the Hamilton situation, there's this weird debate between small business owners just trying to get by on their on their cupcake business versus low income housing. And they're like kind of two different things. (laughs) But because there's so many moving parts, they're two different things. But everything is really related in the the discussion about gentrification. Mm -hmm. Why don't we start there? So why don't you um, give us a description of what what those those arguments that we're hearing in Hamilton are? On one hand, you have this idea that you've got small businesses that are just trying to make a living and that they're just trying to get by. And I guess part of it is it's like when a neighborhood gets an influx of people with disposable income, it becomes more attractive to open your dream storefront than if you're in a neighborhood where people don't have a lot of disposable income. 
So that there's one factor there. That's like kind of the liberal idea of like the small business owner, the guy that's working, you know, 70 hours a week and he's probably not even paying himself and he's just trying to inject a couple of jobs into the into the industry. And we can get really caught up on that. And I think people do get really caught up on that. On the other side of it, you have these like massive development projects that are super corrupt, that have politicians in their pockets and that are are suppressing discussions on public housing or cooperative housing or whatever those injections of housing units has to be for low income or middle income uh, people or just people that want to rent uh, in a, in, without having to pay through the nose posited against the condo market being used to continuously upsell people so that that all of a sudden everybody becomes an investor and then you can look at it either as an individual project like me personally I buy a condo at four hundred thousand dollars and I saw sell it in two years and make a hundred thousand dollars off of it because I rode a wave uh, how do you an- analyze that versus what are the broader forces of capital that are injecting all of these spaces into communities that are that are effectively like you can imagine literally built on top of people and then those people are either well they're priced out and they have to go somewhere else and where do they go and and these are all city planning discussions that are often just opaque and that you don't that you don't see and so instead we get caught up in a debate about cupcake shops and should we smash their windows or not <laughs> well i don't yeah i don't really get caught up in that debate but like let's imagine <laughs> i do <laughs> Right, Hamilton. Um, but, but, you know, and I think that that's part of what's happening in Weston. So here you have, uh, as, you know, Saron will know and be able to describe quite well, and I hope, I hope I've encouraged her to write an article about it, so I hope that she does. Here you have a, a community where, you, you know, you have barbershops that have been in the community for so long. You have small businesses that that serve a particular community, a largely black community that have been in the area for so long. It's perfect for someone like Sarone, who also runs a business there as a human rights lawyer. You know, it's a, it's this, it's a very specific type of community, the type of food that you get there. It's all it's a very black community. And when you say, okay, we're going to evict all of these people and we're going to build these condos, well, all of a sudden, it's no longer viable to to operate your business there or to even live there. So what that does is, and you know, I was talking to a whole bunch of elders in the Black community about this recently. Actually, is it just pushes in our community, the Black community, Black people out of the city? You know, we used to be uh, around Bathurst and Bloor, and then there was a point where we were uh, in Kensington, and um, you know, we're at Weston Road, we're at Regent Park, and all of those places were being pushed out, and also along Eglinton West. And so here's the thing, right? Like the the city can make decisions to support uh, the businesses that are there, or they can make decisions to support uh, new condo projects. What is happening is that the city is deciding to support condo projects over uh, the people who live in our city right now. And the people who live in our city right now are not being given an opportunity to be a part of the conversations that shape what our city is going to look like. A lot of this obviously has to do with money. It has to do with taxes. It has to do with tax breaks um, and who's getting these projects and so on. And there's so many different consequences to 
how this works from the trauma that exists if you are, you know, literally have no choice uh, because you're living in community housing and the city is telling you you have to move to, you know, your business being a pushed out. One of the only Black-owned beauty supply places in the city is currently being moved to just being an online store because they're being evicted for a, uh, for a condo, and that's called Honey Fig. You know, that, you know, your your business, your even your, your livelihood, you can't afford anymore because of gentrification. But there's also uh, consequences that people don't tend to think about. It changes the political landscape in a really massive way. Mm-hmm. You are... When when this is mm. happening, when the city council is saying, okay, we're going to approve a thousand, two thousand, three thousand new units here that are going to be between five hundred thousand to a million dollars each, those are a thousand, two thousand, three thousand votes that are potentially votes, right? Like maybe there's a, an investor who owns. 500 of those units like I don't know right right but what they're it like implementing are actually votes of very rich people and what you're pushing out are votes of really poor people it actually has a massive political impact on who gets elected in city council who is supported in city council mm-hmm. and what the city continues to develop as and I I never hear that conversation when we're talking about gentrification, but it's such an important piece. Yeah. Votes are tied to where you live and where you own property. Yeah. So if I own property in Vancouver but live in Toronto, I can vote in Toronto and Vancouver. Like there it's the only, you know, capitalism works such that you can you can you can purchase political power. And so when you are inflexing thousands of of units of high cost housing into a city, you are influxing thousands of votes that are going to be able to control what the city continues to develop like. Well, worse than that, and you you kind of made mention of it, but I actually think it's interesting to explore. It's not thousands of new votes. These units are by and large going to be gobbled up by uh, entities. Right. Mm -hmm. Like these are investments. And so there will obviously be some people that that move in individually. It's their only property. But Mm -hmm. but that's not the experience in these new condo developments. They get purchased in block en masse by by hedge funds or by other uh, holding companies looking to make sure that they've got a diverse portfolio and safe investments because the money is going to continue to go up. And then that actually concentrates political power, not just that you're uh, that you're socially engineering these communities to be places where people can afford to purchase such high expensive units, but you're you're also privileging the individuals that are that are at the head of or the groups of people that are benefiting from purchasing these places on on mass, and so then there's political power given to individuals because you know they 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 live there they're they're redefining the political map but there's also political donations there's also other pro- like the corruption in the construction industry is also part of all of this <laughs> and mm-hmm. and that's and that's not what this shows on specifically because we could talk about that on a, in a completely other way but 
If you look at the construction industry and what's been exposed in Montreal, and if you are listening and you're like, yeah, I know that Montreal is super corrupt and and the construction industry, it is the same industry in Toronto. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) We are mm -hmm. all connected. Thank you, global globalization. And thank you, like neoliberal capital. Um, And so anything that's happening in Montreal is happening in Toronto as well. And, and, and people sit around and they scratch their heads and they're like, why is city council so white when Toronto is so not white? It's like, (laughs) These are the forces that that in for in entrench who is in power. This is social engineering. And when you spread it across an entire city, um, it absolutely destroys people's sense of community and rootedness. Because if your community is constantly being forced out of where they live, you are not going to be able to become rooted anywhere. And the waves of of immigration that you talk about with the black community those waves of immigration happen for, for actually have always happened for for waves of of immigrants except that a lot of those immigrant communities became white so i'm thinking of jewish communities the italian communities or portuguese yeah. and these groups went yes from kensington market to college street west to uh, bathurst and, and wilson but they went to the suburbs to to con- continuously increasing their capital and and making more money off of property transfer but thanks mm-hmm. to white supremacy and racism this is not how other immigrant communities have been able to find upward mobility with their capital Mm-hmm. And in fact, like it, the process that I just described with the collective of black artists, COBA, uh, that happens to all sorts of different black community organizations. They become destroyed through this process because they become no longer viable as our community is left more and more disparate as we move out. We're not we're not able to stay close to one another as gentrification happens. What's happening along Eglinton West is um, is really distressing because it's ostensibly you know supposed to be a part of what was meant to be this really progressive project, this light rail project that uh, you know. <laughs> Sometimes I get really frustrated when I hear about, you know, progressive projects in the city that literally just don't consider uh, the racialized folks or black folks who are in the city. Because, yes, it's a it's a progressive project to have more transit. You know, it's going to be above ground. And so you don't have to dig into the ground and it's not going to be really expensive and so on. But what was the plan to support the businesses that are on Eglinton West that has often been called Little Jamaica, but doesn't have the same sort of um, protections or support that other uh, community based areas of the city have? But, you know, all these shops are being forced to close right now because as the city is building this uh, this light rail a transit, they have had you know there was, there's been no support that's given to these these groups, and it looks like their their storefronts are closed because of all the construction that is going. Some of them are still open, and you can't really get to them. You can't see them anymore. There's no parking along the street anymore. It's really difficult to to really even move up there. But you know who's not having troubles is condos. Condos are starting to be built along that entire route where people are being forced out of their businesses, businesses are being forced to close. And the city could have said, 
you know, okay, this is this is going to be a really great project for this these for this community. Let's make sure that there's some sort of financial support, some resources. Can we um, put a pause on certain types of taxes during this time to make sure that these communities are able to stay and that we're not forcing out um, this really important community. But that's not happening. And there's been all sorts of stories of people who are nervous that they're going to have to give up their businesses, they're going to have to move out of the city. It's just another part of the city uh, that primarily black, highly Caribbean group is going to have to move out of. And it's, you know, it's like at a time of like you're building this LRT, there's going to be all sorts of people who are going to be moving through the area in a new way. There's going to be a new type of accessibility to the area. And condo developers know this. Mm. And condo developers are capitalizing on this time where people are being forced to move out. They're buying the properties at this these uh, low prices right now because people are being forced out. And when that LRT is done, it's going to be a newly gentrified area that people can't afford to live in anymore who are from my community. And we saw this coming seven years ago. Oh, absolutely. You were living in that area, weren't weren't you? Yep. I remember very well, there was an independent instrument shop um, right at the top of Oakwood and Eglinton, and it's a T intersection, and a car uh, drove into it. (laughs) Hmm. Um, And it (laughs) it was just at the same time. I'm just, this just like follow me through the story. (laughs) Um, it, it had just been at the exact same time as these big announcements were happening because because to move across Eglinton was a, is a nightmare. It's a disaster. Yeah. Like you cannot move across Eglinton if you don't have a car. No. And he never opened up his shop again because it was very clear that there wasn't much point because that like exact location was going to be a station in a matter of years. Oh, wow. Um, there was a house behind our apartment that was sold. It was a, it was like a very big uh, one unit uh, d- uh, detached home that sold for just under $500,000, which for sure now would be above a million dollars. It's like, we talk about these forces as if they are uh, a given. And this is, this is a big issue that, um, that progressives need to figure out how to wrap their heads around. And um, everything that's happening on Eglinton, it it reminds me of the, of the St. Clair project. Mm -hmm. So St. Clair Mm -hmm. is like the next major street south of Eglinton. It's a, it's also an East West street. And uh, it was basically shut down for three years to redo the streetcars. And the right wing capitalized on kind of the same narratives that you were talking about, about closing shops and how and blah, blah, blah. But Mm -hmm. the problem is that the left has not figured out how to have this discussion from a leftist perspective. Mm -hmm. And so we give the space to the right to be against uh, transit projects. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put out there one reason why I think that that happens is because the progressive left in Toronto that talks about things like transit is so white and doesn't mm-hmm. actually have people involved in the movements speaking on behalf of their movements from these communities to give the perspective of the small business, the, the real small business owner that is being priced out at the expense of or at the at the profit of uh, these condo developers. Um, And -hmm. so then it becomes densification versus single family homes or cars versus um, versus streetcars at the Eglinton Crosstown. 
how has the left so lost ground to be able to explain this kind of stuff, to own this? Because this is this should be owned by the left, but but it's like, no, 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 it's given to city council and then up is down and you're trying to figure out, okay, I'm for streetcars, but like I'm against like tax breaks and... But the uh, left hasn't... Yeah, it's but so the left hasn't connected these issues as even related. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem. Like, I haven't heard people talk about, yeah. you know, it's been really interesting to see some of the discussions about Transit City plan to, like, redo how transit is done in Toronto that is long dead <laughs> years ago. And a lot of racialized folks were really concerned about the project for all sorts of different reasons. But it was like the left was like really supportive of it. And I was just like, why can't people see that, you know, like racialized people are always left out of these discussions. Mm. And then it always ends up that, oh, the people who can move in the city are people who live in you know, the the wider space you're in, the more you're able to move, yep. <laughs> the faster you're able to move. That's how it happens. That's what's going to happen with this LRT if there isn't some sort of intervention. Like, I think we can still, at this point, it's still possible to uh, stop what's happening along Eglinton, uh, to, to support the businesses, to make sure that Little Jamaica is supported and so on. But it's going to take planned intervention in the mm. same way that there is planned intervention to make the Daniels Corporation create the entire east side of Toronto, which you, you lower lower east side, it sound like I'm talking about New York, but um, the southern, <laughs> the southeast part of Toronto that used to be or is in, you know, there's this, we're in a space of flux, Regent Park. Like there's a planning system that goes into saying, okay, Daniels Corp, you get to to make the entire thing new. Mm -hmm. And there should be a planning apparatus that says, you know what, uh, the Caribbean, this little Jamaica here, like Western Road should should remain as they are. And we're going to plan to keep them this way. We're going to plan to support these businesses. We're going to plan to support this community. And we're going to make sure that they've got some parks and some nice things yeah. <laughs> like at the same time. Yeah. And not only think about those things when the condo developers come in and say, you know, it'd be really great for business. Some green space. <laughs> People will probably be listening to this and say, OK, so then what are the what are those solutions? Um, and, and also to, to think a little bit broadly, because, you know, we talk a lot about Toronto. What does this mean for other cities across Canada where, you know, people are like, oh, that that neighborhood is full of crime. That neighborhood is is not a is not a desirable neighborhood. We need to attract people to move to it. It's <laughs> <laughs> so white, man. I just like <laughs> <laughs> it is. I just can't even. Oh, I have to. Okay, I'll just apologize on behalf of all of my people. <laughs> Whatever. I don't accept. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't even believe it. I don't believe my own apology. I'm pulling a Harper right there. Well, what do we do? There's so many different things that need to be done. Actually, like obviously, as we always say on this podcast, organize, organize, organize. But like, I think that there is a way that you know. I I know a lot of people in our like on the left often discount um, electoral campaigns mm -hmm. but i think that especially in a municipal level uh where a lot 
there's so it's so close to the ground there's a lot that can be done i know the municipal politics is like hella embarrassing in canada across canada it's all the most embarrassing level of politics (laughs) but it's actually so so much important things that need to be done you know there's you someone an idiot like mamaliti doesn't get elected because people believe that he's like gonna support the people of uh of, no. you know northern toronto and the york region mamaliti you should just look him up he's like a total buffoon <laughs> um uh look, look up mamaliti and pride that's that's your good introduction oh, to him if you don't know who he God. is like these these awful awful <laughs> people rob ford the doug ford's like these people get elected because of some of the corruption that nora was talking about earlier uh, but also because i think uh we have generally failed to to do yeah. good organizing around um electoral justice in in the city like i think it really is very important to have people discussing city planning, talking about these projects in a way that understands what it is going to do to poor, racialized, Black, Indigenous communities that live in these large urban centers. So that's one of one of the things. We also need to support community organizations in a real way. So mm-hmm. not just, you know, like these one to two or three year grants. Like, I think there should be projects that are long lasting that say, you know, this community is for or these community organizations are for are important to the or, to to the community that lives there and uh, is important to the city and we're actually going to take some of the the money that goes into the city maybe take a little bit away from policing I don't know <laughs> and inject it into these community groups that are the lifeblood of creating a community that supports a healthy city instead of forcing them out and forcing people uh, to not have community at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes me think of that, um, of, a, of a campaign that was won in Montreal last year where the provincial government was trying to redo boundaries and was going to eat up the riding of downtown Montreal, St. Mary St. Jacques, which is uh, low income. It includes parts of the village. Um, and it was going to kind of assume, um, uh, it, it, like kind of divide it such that any political clout that it had was going to be like eaten by the surrounding ridings. Unsurprisingly, it's it's a riding that Menel Massé is the current member of provincial politics, the member of National Assembly. Mm-hmm. And they organized like fucking crazy. And it was actually an amazing victory that they won to mm-hmm. save their riding. Mm-hmm. And so there's also stuff like that, like looking at the riding boundaries, looking at how condo projects are changing things. Like if the majority of the condos at Toronto's waterfront are empty because of Airbnb, who is voting for the next person that represents that riding? I believe that's what Adam Vaughn's riding right now. Um, but it's old Trinity Spadina, which was Olivia Chow's riding, which is NDP. Uh, but then there's also like like at the bottom of all of this is is subsidized housing, low-income housing that is of a high quality where people want to live and where people are able to root themselves and root their families. So Mm -hmm. supporting those projects are so important. Uh, Supporting projects that allow for, for alternative or creative ways to kind of game the, the market are, is really important as well. Like co-ops, right? Like, is it easy to get a mortgage for seven people where you pay yeah, your mortgage yeah. as if you're paying rent and that there's actually a way to govern it? Like co-ops are really popular in Quebec, but they don't really exist in the rest of Canada in the same way. Certainly not at the same level of popularity. And that helps to to, to continuously pull mm-hmm. down the the rents um, because you have to you have to have an, you know a, a mechanism to, to start 
pulling down the rent. And then there has to be talks about taxes and the tax discussion has to get much more sophisticated. Toronto's property taxes are by and large low. And that's that's part of the problem. But they're low, um, but then all of a sudden then they start to jack up when you have these condo developments and then they start pricing people out of the market. So what are the tax instruments that you can use to not price like old women out of their homes because they can't afford the property tax because all of a sudden like they're on top of like oil or something and the the value of the properties through the roof while at the same time you are taxing the hell out of these corporations and these um and these uh firms that are that are just flooding the market with these like the ugliest tiniest condos that you could like imagine if you were satan himself my god i can't believe some of these places that people purchase (laughs) yeah this whole discussion makes me sad because it, it like it's just so real right now and like so many different groups are being pushed out but i hope um you know like there are some strong voices that are a, a part of these discussions that are happening at least in toronto right now and i'm hoping that that exists you know across the landscape of this country because we really need to shift we need we just need to have smarter conversations about gentrification you know it's just it's not it's not just about our artisanal bacon though that is a major problem that should never happen again (laughs) it's about it's about all of these other um big issues that we've talked about and i and i hope to see a shift in the in the discussion about gentrification such that we are talking about uh the the reality of gentrification for so many people who are forced out (laughs) 